Hamburg, Germany, December 1938. Four years into Adolf Hitler's reign as Führer, he is beginning to establish his total dictatorship by taking direct control of the German military. But on the brink of World War II, Hitler is also involved in much stranger endeavors that are hidden to the public. He is committing every remaining resource to searching for ancient relics that he believes could hold incredible powers. They were looking all over the world, and that included Antarctica. The full society actually believed that there were mystics or channels who were able to communicate with these beings who claimed to be either extraterrestrial in origin or claimed to belong to this uh, civilization that lived in Earth's interior. They gave a lot of information about the building of advanced aerospace vehicles, flying saucers, and I think this is where uh, Hitler's Nazi party got a lot of its information about Antarctica, that uh, in Antarctica there is this ancient civilization or bases where they could find a lot of these advanced technologies. Hello, Plastic Pills listeners. I hope you're all doing well and surviving in the midst of the apocalypse. But we're very excited today for a very special episode uh, where we have not just Professor, but Sir Richard Evans uh, with us today to talk about his new book, The Hitler Conspiracies. Professor Evans, for those of you who don't know, is the author of the Third Reich Trilogy, uh, which I went through over the holidays. Uh, and I can say that it's not often you see the word magisterial um, applied to books any longer, but uh, if anything warrants the title, certainly the Third Reich Trilogy does quite definitive. So thanks a lot, Professor Evans. It's really a delight to have you here. Pleasure to be with you. Excellent. Uh, so our first question is just, you wrote a three-volume opus uh, on the Third Reich, which covers virtually every aspect of its history, military policy, culture, you name it. Uh, what motivated you to return to the subject matter for this new book, The Hitler Conspiracies? Well, I began to notice uh, after the book came out, the third volume in 2008, that conspiracy theories, which I'd considered long since uh, debunked, were beginning to come back into, uh, into the mainstream. So uh, I thought this is a, an important and, and rather worrying development. And I got a grant to have a general multidisciplinary look at conspiracy theories, which we had uh, seven post postdoctoral fellows, and I had two co-collaborators, and anything from anthropologists to um, philosophers and so on. Uh, internet couple of internet engineers, indeed, as well. So uh, my part of that, <clears throat> as well as overall direction, was to look at these conspiracy theories, and I, what I discovered was really quite disturbing. So. Over the course of the grant, I, I, I wrote uh, a number of essays that then came became chapters, published them just last year. Just for those uh, readers who are not familiar, your book opens with an introduction where you talk about uh, conspiracy theories. Uh, specifically, you invoke uh, the paranoid style in American politics by Richard Hofstadter as a major influence. Uh, but then you kind of focus on five conspiracy theories in particular. Uh, so I was just wondering, could you talk a little bit about those five conspiracy theories and why you drew specific attention to them? Uh, I should just say for personal reference, the one that I thought was the most uh, informative uh, was this myth of the stab in the back, uh, which, as you point out in various things, motivated the rise of Nazism. Uh, although the one that I thought was the most, shall we say, kooky, uh, was the stuff about <laughs> Hitler uh, being alive. Uh, and UFOs. Well, past 1945. And the UFOs and the Arctic bases, you know, or Antarctic sorry, bases. Yeah. 
Well, <clears throat> of course, and I started thinking about conspiracy theories. There are some, that there are a couple that are supposed to influence the Nazis uh, in a very big way. One of them was the so-called Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is a, an anti-Semitic forgery, uh, which historians uh, have claimed had an enormous influence on Hitler, basically supplied him with what one of them called the warrants for genocide, and uh, inspired him to uh, launch and carry out the Holocaust. Uh, and I looked, began to look rather critically at that one, and there's been a lot of new work on the protocols in the last few years, so I incorporated that, and that's the first chapter. And then the second one is about what you call the stab in the back. That's the idea. As I should say, the protocols of the Elders of Zion uh, it, it propagates the theory of a world Jewish conspiracy to undermine Western and especially German civilization. And the second one was Stab in the Back, which uh, was the idea that had a lot of currency on the German extreme right in the 1920s, after World War I, that the German army had not been defeated on the Western Front in World War I, uh, but it had been stabbed in the back by the Home Front, or in another more narrow version, the Socialists uh, on the Home Front, and even more extreme version, the Jews on the Home Front. Uh, and uh, so I looked at, at that and uh, tried to unravel it and look at its influence. Uh, that's been made responsible, for example, for the fall of the Weimar Republic, the democracy that ruled Germany between the war and uh, Hitler's rise to power. And there's a different kind of conspiracy theory, which is a conspiracy theories uh, that I was a little bit more familiar with before I started, and that is conspiracy theories about the Nazi Germany and what went on. <laughs> One of them is the Nazi deputy leader, Rudolf Hess, uh, flew to Scotland uh, on the 10th of May, 1941, uh, with a, a peace offer. And it's the evidence is that, that it was his own idea. He was trying to get back some uh, uh, of the power that he lost in the Nazi hierarchy, and he thought by concluding a peace with uh, Britain, before, just a few weeks before the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union, Soviet, Poland, Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine, he, uh, he would uh, manage to stop a war on two fronts, not the Nazi Germany fighting against the East and against the West, which he thought had proved so disastrous in World War I. <clears throat> and there are many conspiracy theorists, almost all of them in Britain, who claim that this was not his own madcap idea, but but the result of a, a, a plot concocted uh, with Hitler and, and, and others, or a plot that was um, hatched by the British to lure him over. Uh, and then I, I also look at uh, conspiracy theories about the Reichstag fire. Now, now this is 27th, 28th of February, 1933. Hitler has been appointed head of the German government, but it's a coalition with conservatives. He doesn't have dictatorial power. And the German parliament building, the Reichstag, burned down. He claimed it was a communist plot to stage a revolution and managed to get an emergency decree which essentially suspended civil liberties. And uh, it was uh, really the first cornerstone of his dictatorship. It's after that that uh, there were elections a few days later in which the communists were being arrested and weren't allowed to campaign. And they were a really big party in Nazi Germany. Uh, that was the, the, the beginning of the Nazi dictatorship. 
And again, there are, uh, there are conspiracy theories about it. The Nazis' conspiracy theory was that it was the communists who did it. And they put on trial a number of leading communists, but the courts hadn't been completely Nazified at that stage. And they dismissed the charges for lack of evidence. That left only one person who was tried and executed and eventually, uh, eventually executed, even though arson was not a crime at the time he committed it. That was a young Dutchman, Marinus van der Lubbe. On the other side, the communists believed it was a Nazi plot and mm -hmm. they staged a kind of mock uh, trial in London, which found, of course found the Nazis guilty. And that is the conspiracy theory with legs. That's the one that has been revived consistently up until very recently, still believed in by many people. So I had a hard look at that. I should say that when I was uh, 12 years old, that was I actually believed that in part because I watched a uh, a movie called uh, the Ri Hitler: The Rise of Evil uh, that heavily implied this, right? So yes, that was uh, interesting. There were two TV programs, part one and two. Robert Carlyle as Hitler, mm -hmm. uh, and the first one had my friend and colleague Ian Kershaw, the biographer of Hitler, advising, and it was very good. But he resigned because they wanted to introduce too many fictional elements into it and were taking up too much of his time. And the second part is really terrible, and that's the one where they propagate the idea of the Reichstag being burned down by the Nazis. And then there's a final one, uh, which is Hitler's supposed escape from the bunker to go and live in Argentina. Uh, and, and that's the, the final chapter. And then I wrap it all up by talking more generally about conspiracy theories. And what I wanted to do is to show how, by careful research and investigation, you can disproved conspiracy theories. And that is one way, one way forward, I think, in a world where we're becoming slowly overwhelmed by conspiracy theories about all kinds of different things. I think historians have to stand up and be counted and say, no, this is bunk. Yeah, I was, I was actually curious um, if you could comment more about this kind of increase you said earlier in conspiracy theories as a historian, sort of like, what has your experience been like seeing a change? Like, how would you describe the shift? Because I guess some of the things you mentioned in the book, right, it does seem like there's more of a cottage industry now of books being published by people, you know, on, on Amazon, self-publishing. And then also it seems like the History Channel really at the beginning, at its, at its origin, you know, it really seemed like it was making a serious attempt to do history programming. And now it's pretty much always conspiracy theories. So... If you could comment on that. Yeah, I, I mean, of course, there have always been conspiracy theories and there have always been conspiracies. Mm -hmm. um, and you find on all the subjects that I uh, cover in the book, you can see conspiracy theories in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 90s. Um, uh, for example, uh, the, um, uh, the escape, alleged escape of, of Hitler from the bunker, you find that being propagated by, uh, by Stalin, the Soviet leader, dictator uh, already just after after the war and it's occasionally revived but like the other subjects i deal with it's become much more common and much more widespread and that i think is largely mainly the influence of the internet and social media hmm. well actually I, I had a follow-up question then um just related to that which is uh, you mentioned, you know, earlier in this interview that there are two kinds of conspiracy theories that you address in the book. Uh, one is conspiracy theories that were either believed in or propagated by the Nazis, uh, and the other are conspiracy theories propagated about the Nazis. Um, the Hess, um, 
incident and then uh, Hitler surviving are the two main ones. So I'm just wondering if we could start by looking at the first a little bit. Uh, and can you explain the appeal uh, of conspiratorial thinking, let's just call it that for right now, uh, to uh, the NSDAP? Uh, why did it have traction in the party? Uh, you know, what kind of conspiracies were they prone to believing and what kind of ideological function did they serve? Well, what I found was really, I think, interesting is that the Nazis were not great conspiracy theorists. Mm -hmm. If you look at Stalin, he sees conspiracies on every corner. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, in the 30s, he staged these purges and show trials and uh, and executed a large number, most of his uh, his lieutenants. Um Zinoviev, Bukharin, and, and, and many others. And as partly because he came into politics in a period that was full of real conspiracies, whether you, you never knew who to trust. Before World War I, the treasurer of the Bolshevik party, Malinovsky, was actually a czarist police spy, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and so he uh, didn't trust anybody. And he'd come up through the ranks, as it were. So when Lenin, the founder of the Soviet Union, uh, died, um, Stalin was not his obvious successor, and he had to fight his way and maneuver and intrigue his way through all of these other prominent uh, Bolsheviks, prominent communists, in order to get the supreme position. Uh, Hitler, so, so he was very suspicious of them, and he suspected them of plotting against him and, and arrested them and forced them to make confessions and had them killed. Um, now, with uh, and everything that went wrong in Soviet Russia, collectivization, industrialization, there were always things going wrong in these processes. And he chose to blame them going wrong, their failures and problems on conspiracies, invented imaginary conspiracies. But uh, that meant he let himself, as it were, off the, off the hook. Now, Hitler's very different. <clears throat> Hitler emerges in the 1920s and almost straight away, as soon as he becomes active in politics, is a leader. He's the leader. He's the leading figure. And there's never any question that his lieutenants, like Goering, Goebbels, Hess, uh, and the others, uh, were second rank. They owed their positions to him. They owed their allegiance to him. And so he wasn't. He didn't suspect them. In fact, the flight of Rudolf Hess uh, came as a, to, to Scotland came as a terrible shock to him. Uh, as a lot of eyewitnesses who saw him getting the news uh, have, have, have said. Um, <clears throat> so he's not nearly as much a, a conspiracy theorist. Now, if you look in, in that context at the conspiracies which were kind of uh, around, the theories that were around at the time of the Nazis, um, what I found with the Protocols of the Elders of Zion was that, in fact, it didn't have nearly as much influence as many historians have, have said. Mm -hmm. uh, this was a, a document that was a uh, purported to be the minutes of a meeting of Jewish elders in 1897, plotting the takeover of the world. Uh, it's a very peculiar document. <clears throat> it comes from Russia. It was translated into other languages. And it's... Uh, propagated in English by Henry Ford, the motor manufacturer, who was a, a deeply anti-Semitic uh, person. And the Protocols of the Elders of Zion were, um, the, the, record, uh, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion purported to be the minutes of the meeting of Jews in 1897, of elders, leaders, uh, who were plotting all sorts of terrible things. Um, it looked, um, uh, if you look at the actual minutes, it's very short book. They're very strange. They, they're not traditional 
Christian anti-Semitism. There's no mention of the so-called blood libel. The mention that uh, Jews were kidnapping uh, Christian boys to use their blood for ritual purposes or the desecration of the host in the communion uh, service in the Eucharist or poisoning wells or any of these things. There's no modern anti-Semitism either. It's not a racist document. Uh, it, 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 the Jews are definitely treated as a religious community in it. Uh, and there's nothing about sort of Jewish racial characteristics trying to refute the ideas that you find with anti-Semites after you get the emergence of racist anti-Semitism in the late 19th century. So it's very much on its of its own kind. Um, it, what it needed for people to understand it was to have a commentaries on it and subheadings and notes, and they're the ones trying to relate it to modern politics in the 1920s and 30s uh, that I think have the influence. But most of all, I probably don't think people read it very much. It's really quite difficult to follow and understand. Certainly not a dangerous, rabble-rousing piece of, of rhetoric. What they did was simply use it as so-called evidence uh, from the Jewish community itself that they were plotting to take over the world. The idea that the Jews are taking over the world or, or, or ran uh, around the world or wanted a revolutions and so on, that's around long before the protocols. It goes right back to the time of the French Revolution, the late 18th century. Now, the crucial, uh, and you find that, that um, Goebbels, uh, Josef Goebbels, who's Hitler's propaganda chief, actually <clears throat> didn't make use of it. His, his staff were always saying, you can't use this nonsense. It's just, you know, it's so ridiculous. Uh, and Hitler doesn't mention it very much. Uh, and in fact, he mentions it after he's given his first anti-Semitic speech and his first anti-Semitic writings. Uh, so it's not, it, it, it doesn't influence him in fact. Uh, it doesn't mention anywhere uh, the idea of extermination, of, of, of mass murder. It's not a warrant for, for genocide. Uh, I think Norman Cohn, although he was a very brilliant writer, the first book about the, serious book about the protocols um, was uh, called Warrant for genocide, and I don't think that's really justified. But there are a lot more interesting things about the document. It's a um, it's a forgery. It's a tissue of falsifications. It was exposed after the end of World War One when it came to currency by a reporter for the London Times in Istanbul, and uh, it, he showed that it was a uh, cobbled together from a French satire against Napoleon III in the mid nineteenth century, and a passage from a German Gothic novel uh, and bits and pieces put into it by the Russian compiler, who was probably Pavel Khrushchevan, who had instigated a pogrom involving in Bessarabia, involving the murder of 45 Jews, and he cobbled it together to try and justify that. Uh, that seems the most likely uh, answer to who composed it, though we can't really be, be sure. Um, and so it was a blatant forgery, and that was, uh, it didn't come from the Jewish community at all. Uh, it, it was um, a, a falsification, and it not a very good one either. And that was all confirmed at a trial held in Bern in Switzerland in the mid-1930s. Now, if you look at what Hitler and Goebbels said about it, they said, it doesn't really matter if it's true, if it really is the minutes of a meeting of, uh, of Jewish elders, or not. What matters is that it reveals, they thought, a deeper truth uh, about the Jews. And that is that their racial characteristics, it's a pure racism here, 
incline them wherever they are, even unconsciously, Hitler says in Mein Kampf, to be subversive, to plot against Western civilization, to try to overthrow Germany, and so on. Uh, so the actual evidence doesn't really matter. They felt they knew, in quote marks, that Jews were, were subversive. And that's a kind of pure racism. It's not, it's a particular kind of conspiracy theory because it it's not that there's a group of Jewish elders sitting in a room plotting everything. Uh, that, that doesn't work, it, of course. Uh, what it does mean is in, for them, for Hitler, the Nazis, that this is imbued in the Jewish character. Uh, of course, complete nonsense, uh, but that is what that belief that the Jewish character was subversive, trying to destroy Germany, seemed to be confirmed by the uh, protocols, fake or not, and that is what led to the Holocaust. I actually, I had a follow-up question about this, uh, and then I know, Victor, you had a few things that you wanted to ask. Um, I just wanted to say for our listeners, uh, some of you might remember that I'm a, a critic of Trump, uh, and reading this section of your book where you talk about how, again, uh, Hitler and Goebbels decide, doesn't really matter whether this is literally true because it expresses a kind of deeper spiritual truth, uh, reminded me of some of the Trumpists who used to say that um, we don't need to take Trump literally, we just need to take him seriously, right? Uh, there was this kind of evocative quality to his rhetoric uh, that expressed something more important uh, than facts. Uh, but can you talk very briefly about the kind of way anti-Semitism was structured uh, in Nazi thinking? Uh, because one of the things that I've always found challenging about these doctrines, and I understand that they're vehemently racist doctrines uh, and that they're nonsensical, uh, but was how the Nazis simultaneously used to hold that the Jews were in charge of some kind of vast cabal or conspiracy, right, uh, to control Germany and the destinies of the West or whatever it happens to be, uh, while at the same time characterizing them as subhuman, parasitic, uh, dirty, because uh, there seems to be just such a blatant contradiction here that the mind wouldn't be able to hold to these two things at the same time. Uh, and yet so many millions of people did. So could you maybe speak to that briefly? Yeah, there were, there were many contradictions in Nazi ideology and anti-Semitism. Uh, and one of them was that Jews in the Nazi mind were simultaneously parasites below the level of normal human beings. But on the other hand, uh, they were also uh, incredibly dangerous and very, very powerful Um there's a very good Jewish joke uh, about about this. It's in the Warsaw Ghetto during the, the war, and there are two old, old men, uh, friends, and one of them comes in and sees his friend there sitting reading the, reading the Nazi newspaper in the tram, in the streetcar. And he says, what are you, what are, Moshe, what are you doing? Why are you reading the Nazi newspaper? And, and his friend looks up and says, well, uh, I'm living a terrible life. It's you can't uh, food, I'm beaten by the Nazis, you know, it's really dreadful. So once in a while, I buy the Nazi newspaper and I read there that we Jews are all powerful. We are incredibly influential. We've done this, we've done that. Um, so and that is a contradiction. There's another contradiction, of course. Uh, which, but I mean, let me deal with that one first. That, that is a contradiction because you resolve it by saying, well, look at, I know, locusts, they can destroy whole uh, countries, uh, farmlands. Uh, you know, look at look at uh, ants. They can they can kind of tear down houses and so on. So you can be simultaneously subhuman and, and superhuman. Uh, again, the other contradiction is most obvious: is that uh, in Nazi ideology, Jews are said to control all kinds of things, banks, medical profession, the law, newspapers, all the rest of it. 
uh, and they are said to be uh, wealthy uh, parasites upon the German people. Um, but at the same time, they're behind communism and socialism. And so if you, if you say, well, um, well, hang on a minute, you know, don't you think that communists and socialists were opposed to the big banks and the elites? Uh, and the Nazi uh, answer to that is that um, that just shows how cunning they are. They're dividing the people uh, against themselves. And that's a characteristic of conspiracy theories like that, is that they have an answer for everything. You cannot, you cannot falsify them. Uh, again, if you say these, these ideas are ridiculously untrue, uh, th they will simply say, well, you must be part of the conspiracy. Yeah, I remember one figure uh, when responding to accusations that the Protocols of uh, the Elders of Zion were falsified. Uh, I think it was Hitler actually said, well, this, the fact that people are making this accusation just goes to prove how big the conspiracy uh, actually is, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And it's kind of like, Classic. well. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Well, you mentioned Hostad, and what we're dealing here was a paranoid style, as he called it. It's a great liberal writer of the 50s and 60s. Mm -hmm. And um, the paranoid style is one that kind of invents things, develops theories, paranoid uh, theories and, and fantasies in order to account for an uncomfortable reality. Right. Uh, they invented all. So none of the things we've been talking about has any bearing on reality at all. Of course, there were a few Jews who were among the socialists, but the majority were not, and they didn't have a disproportionate uh, influence on the socialist and communist movements. Of course, there were some Jewish bankers, but the majority were not Jewish. Uh, and so on. You, you look at these things very carefully and they, these theories crumble. So, um, yeah, this actually segues nicely into one of the one of the questions I had was, um, you know, I think in the book you discuss some of the t common tactics that conspiracy theorists tend to use, like they're kind of argumentative. I think, for example, in the last chapter uh, you bring up, I think you're quoting someone else talking about claim by association, claim by implication, uh, arguments from silence, right? And I wonder if you could expand on some of those tactics and how they work argumentatively. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. If you look, for example, at conspiracy theorists who are writing about Rudolf Hess and his flight to Scotland with a bogus uh, peace offer to Churchill, which was entirely his own invention. Um, and you say, what about the evidence? And they will say, well, of course, you know, the documents in the archives have been taken out. They've been weeded out in order to protect uh, protect the British political elite or whoever it is. Uh, if you look at the, <coughs> or, or people involved, like the Duke of Kent, member of the royal family, mm -hmm. who died in, in, in a plane crash, that must have been deliberately caused in order to silence him because he knew too much. And you, again, you look at the Reichstag fire. Now, what is interesting about these two conspiracy theories is that in both cases, a single person caused, uh, was, was at the root of, Root of events. So, um, Rudolf House, there is no evidence that Hitler sent him. Hitler was shocked and surprised and depressed. There's no evidence that anyone tried to lure him over. It was entirely his own idea. There's a lot of evidence uh, chronicling eyewitness accounts of, of Hitler being so shocked. Uh, nobody else is involved. It was just Hess. Even the people who got the plane ready, put extra fuel tanks on it. Uh, and, and helped it take off and so on. Uh, they had no idea that he was going to fly all the way to Scotland. And of course, it's crazy because the Duke of Hamilton, whom he wanted to see, who was a leading figure in an Anglo-German friendship society, but not a pro-Nazi in any way, 
uh, was not the important political figure. Hess had completely got it wrong. It was another fantasy. Uh, but people can't, conspiracy theorists can't believe that Hess, it was all his own idea. And when you look at, then you say, where's the evidence? Well, it's all been suppressed. You know, the documents were weeded out. People like Duke of Kent have been killed and so on. Exactly the same with the Rice Take Fire, which I mentioned earlier. Now, the young Dutchman who was arrested and executed, Marinus von der Lubbe, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't even a German. He wasn't even a member of the Communist Party. And the Nazis hang on him, this blame for a vast conspiracy. Uh, the, I think if there had been a Nazi conspiracy, they certainly wouldn't have chosen someone like van der Lubbe that had chosen a proper German communist. Uh, the people who believe it was the Nazis who started the fire, again, uh, you ask them, where's the evidence uh, that it was a plot? And apart from you sweep aside all the speculation and innuendo and invention that's common to these conspiracy theories, uh, you say, well, what about, is there any documents? No, the documents have all been destroyed. Uh, or what about the eyewitnesses then? Uh, are then the people who are in on the plot have all been killed? They were killed in the night of the Long Knives in 1934. Um, so you explain the lack of documentation as, as being a product of the conspiracy that you're, you're positing. Uh, and I found those similarities really very, very uh, striking and, and very telling, I think. Yeah, it almost seems like they're using the lack of evidence as evidence, as stronger evidence, right? As like a sign that it's actually true, almost. Exactly. These, you know, these conspiracy theories are not really falsifiable in the normal sense of the word. There's right. always and some I, explanation. Exactly. And I also noticed, you know, one, you, you made an observation about a lot of this sort of cottage industry. I know I noted earlier of these, you know, whatever... Uh, conspiracy history books that are showing up on Amazon and, you know, these history channel documentaries where they, they use this tactic of uh, speculation, right? They say this might have been where, you know, Hitler escaped to. This might have been. I wonder Could if we could talk about that way. a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, there's a wonderful review of a TV program alleging that Hitler escaped the bunker in 1945 and went to live in Argentina. Uh, that's, I think it's a Vanity Fair that says, uh, you know, if, uh, if you drank a, uh, a whiskey every time uh, they mentioned uh, he might have been here, this might have happened, this could have happened, you'd be completely drunk by the end <laughs> of the first, uh, first ad break, you know? Um, so it's just a lot of speculation. Yeah. Joining the dots and, and, and in a way that's not supported by any evidence. Yeah, well, this is actually where um, I thought it was very curious and I kind of wanted to segue briefly to the present uh, as we move closer to the end of the interview, because um, the last chapter, uh, as mentioned, which concerns uh, whether Hitler escaped the bunker, um, you mentioned that there's kind of not just a cottage industry, but almost an entertainment industry that's kind of emerged around this possibility. And people have movies, Hollywood productions, uh, some higher budget, some not, you know, where Hitler comes back and he's a zombie or he's tortured. Or uh, I thought one that was really amusing is um, you mentioned there's this movie of uh, I think produced by a German company where the Nazis established a base on a moon uh, and then tried to reinvade Earth generations later. Iron Sky, yeah. There's a lot of fictional, there's a lot of movies, you know, The Boys from Brazil, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, the, there's an, an Iron Sky. Uh, the, the Iron Sky, 
is is a truly terrible movie and it's no extremely doubt. entertaining. I've really great greatly enjoyed it. It has <laughs> I can recommend it. If you want to see every single cliche about the Nazis, all down, all the way down to the the blonde girl dressed in an SS uniform and wearing jack boots and so on. <laughs> They're all there. Um Oh, I'm 100% going to watch it. I thought it sounded hilarious. So. <laughs> this is fun. These are fun. But nobody takes them seriously. Mm-hmm. And what's different, uh, I think, recently, including the 24-part series, Hunting Hitler, is that this claim, they claim to be the truth. Uh, so people who believe that Hitler, claim that Hitler escaped to Argentina, mm-hmm. simply dismiss all the massive investigations and research by historians, by uh, a, a legal commission in Bavaria that sought to establish Hitler's death and, and issue a death certificate in the, in the 1950s um, by Hugh Trevor Roper, who went into this first, uh, just after the war, by many others. There's a lot of evidence. The Russians, the Soviets, uh, wrote a report with, based on interviews with the two men who had buried burned Hitler and Eva Brown's bodies in the garden above the Reich above the bunker um, and others. All the eyewitnesses have been interviewed. They all, all tell the story. The, the outlines are very, very clear. But these are dismissed by the conspiracy theorists as uh, official knowledge. So either they were not telling the truth, and that's not the case at all, no evidence of that, or they were kind of, why should they have been suborned into saying Hitler was dead when he wasn't. Um, there's no real reason behind it. Uh, interestingly, Eva Brown, who became Hitler's wife, his long-term companion, was a professional photographer, and she took um, movies, home movies, photographs of Hitler and his entourage, mostly in uh, their mountain retreat in Bavaria, uh, right away up to the last stage of the war, um, not a single photograph has survived after the war. Uh, there's no evidence of his having been seen by anybody. It's all secondhand hearsay. My mother had a friend who says she saw Hitler kind of stuff. <laughs> Nothing is corroborated. There's even a woman who's produced this as, as, as having um, uh, irrefutable direct evidence that Hitler survived. She was working in a, a house, uh, doing sort of cooking and serving and so on. Uh, where a mysterious German visitor appeared and she wasn't allowed to see him in Argentina. Um, uh, she had to leave his meals outside the door. And the chauffeur who uh, worked for the house whispered to her, this is Hitler, it's Hitler. Uh, so the meals she left were kind of, she said, typical German food. She never saw the guy. Uh, uh, so the food that she made for him was maybe schnitzel, sausages, all that kind of stuff. Well, Hitler was a vegetarian. He was a confirmed vegetarian. He would never have touched sausages or uh, yeah. or, or, or So he, he had terrible, terribly bad teeth. His breath must have smelled dreadful. Mm-hmm. Um, and but but he didn't touch. It's it's all fantasy, and she never saw him. So that's not confirmation, is it? Not evidence at all. So who's peddling this stuff? Well, there's a number of different motives. Uh, we all love a good conspiracy story. I mean, sure. some of my favorite movies. You know, like the Bourne movie. Oh, I knew I'd like you. I'm a big fan too. <clears throat> They're great fun. But it's a different matter when you claim that this is the truth, this is what really happened. People are fascinated by it. I think there's a strong dose of admiration for Hitler here. Mm-hmm. Here was a man who'd started World War II, was responsible for the Holocaust. He uh, was a, a world historical genius, even if you think he was an evil genius. So he can't possibly be um, uh, die, uh, die this 
squalid death in a hole in the ground. He shoots himself in the temple just before the Red Army uh, arrives, and then, then the body is burnt and, and, and so on. Um, he must have fooled the Allies somehow. And the most interesting thing about this, the, the evidence is, is non-existent. He's supposed to have uh, flown out uh, of Berlin, no evidence at all, and hardly unlikely since Berlin was a heap of rubble and you couldn't land a plane there uh, at the end in late April. Um, there must have been a, a body double. Uh, he must have left earlier. Well, there's absolutely zero evidence for that. Uh, and it's particularly suspicious because the man who's put that theory forward also uh, also argued that Rudolf Hess's body was not Rudolf Hess and Heinrich Himmler, the head of, head of the SS, he was not, um, uh, his body was not Himmler and so on. Um, so the evidence is entirely lacking. The submarines supposed to have taken Hitler to Argentina turns out to have been sunk before the end of the war. Uh, one other submarine that's been identified was carrying a cargo of cigarettes. Well, he didn't smoke and didn't allow smoking in his presence. And you go through, I go through all of these theories. There's admiration for Hitler. And I think uh, some desire to make a bit of money. Uh, this is a profitable enterprise, showing films and publishing books about Hitler's survival. And people, in, people enjoy reading them. Hunting Hitler had three or four million viewers per, per episode. So that's quite large. And that's even more important, I think, to um, present the evidence and question what they're saying. I was wondering if um, I could ask you a question just as a historian more broadly, um, because, you know, Matt and I are both um, political theorists. Effectively, we hang around with other philosopher types and theory types and I think one of the, and I rarely uh, find myself reading uh, history. So, you know, reading your book, I think one of the things that strikes me and I, I'm reminded when I do go back to history is the way the the useful part of it is the way you, you will, it reveals the human tendency to repeat patterns of thinking and behavior, I suppose. And, uh, you know, there's a couple examples that jump out in your book. I mean, the one that comes to mind that I was like, wow, you know, is uh, when... Uh, the, you talk about how the Nazis work conflate the social democrats with Marxists, right? And it reminds me of the way you know Republicans not to compare them to Nazis, but you know that they they will you know conflate Obama with socialism or something like that. And I wonder if you had thoughts, or are there any of those examples of kinds of you know um, repetition or human pa human patterns of behavior that have stuck in your mind over your years as as being of being a historian? Yes, I, mean, I should say the, the social democrats who were. Uh, the largest party before the Nazis in the Weimar Republic's democracy were Marxists. Uh, they didn't jettison their Marxist, Marxist view right. until well after World War II. They were not communists, however, and they were. Right. And you have to remember the Social Democrats and the communists between them won more votes than the Nazis did in the last free elections of the Weimar Republic in November 32. But they uh, were at on with each other. The Social Democrats were blamed by the communists for the assassination of their leaders, Liebknecht and Luxembourg, at the end of World War I, um, by right-wing troops actually employed by the Social Democrats who were in the government at the time. So um, uh, what about these repetitions? Well, I think one thing that strikes me immediately is if you look at QAnon, uh, okay, this big conspiracy theory, uh, which is garnered a lot of support, particularly amongst Trump supporters. You can see quite a few people amongst those who stormed the Capitol building on January 6th wearing QAnon T-shirts or carrying QAnon uh, banners. Uh, this, is a belief, this is a belief that um, 
even just talking about it seems ridiculous, but uh, a belief that uh, Donald Trump is secretly leading a, a, a movement to expose and destroy a worldwide conspiracy, particularly headed up by Democrats, Hollywood actors, George Soros and others, uh, to kidnap boys and um, exploit them for sexual purposes or to take um, adrenaline from them. Uh, knock them unconscious and, and extract adrenaline from them. Now, this is very similar to a medieval uh, a, a conspiracy belief that the Jews were taking uh, blood from Christian boys that I mentioned earlier in our in our talk. Um, I think it's a, a, a connected to that in some ways. One connection might be the strength of it, of extreme evangelical Christians in the pro-Trump movement. But whatever it is, of course, it's, it's absolutely lacking in any evidence mm. at all. It's just the similarity between the two beliefs are uh, it, it is really quite striking. Yeah, that actually reminds me, uh, I read an article once that connected QAnon and also maybe traced back some of the medieval history you're mentioning to the satanic panic in the States of the, the 1990s, right? Um, where there, everyone was afraid in the 80s and 90s of like, you know, heavy metal music. And there started to be these rumors that kids were being feasted on by uh, these Satanists or whatever. Yes, yeah, so they're similar. I mean, but what what is interesting is that QAnon has a very large anti-Semitic content mm -hmm. to it. Um, and therefore you find these kinds of beliefs are cropping up in it, in it again. And white supremacism is also, uh, of course, um, also anti-Semitic. Remember the Charlottesville in 2017 in the... In the uh, um, in the big extreme right-wing demonstration, there were shouts of uh, Jews will not replace us. Uh, this, this another conspiracy theory in our own time is the Great Replacement Theory, which alleges that the white race, as they like to say, is being replaced by um, other races in, in America, and those include Jews. And this is a, uh, and you find these anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, even, for example, in the belief that. The Rothschild Banking Company, a Jewish firm, international Jewish firm, is um, sponsoring uh, laser beams to come from satellites going around the <laughs> yeah. earth, started the California fires. And again, that's connected to uh, this kind of conspiratorial interpretation of the effects of global warming, right? Uh, which again, of course, global warming, global heating skepticism is a, a, a serious and widely held belief on the, on the right in American politics. So uh, one of the interesting characters that appears near the end of your book, uh, we point out, you know, we've deviated uh, some ways from the kind of Hitler survival myth here, uh, is Jerome Corsi, um, who has deeper links uh, in the American kind of conspiratorial right, uh, including to people like Alex Jones, uh, who I should say was my first encounter with some of these conspiracy theories, because uh, one of my roommates was doing his PhD in film and kind of had an interest in um, some of this uh, interest, let's uh, say, uh, eccentric stuff that was emerging online. Uh, and, you know, Jerome Corsi, uh, you know, pushed forward uh, this idea, certainly that Hitler survived in Argentina. Uh, he also has 9-11 truther beliefs. But the way that he kind of frames all this uh, is quite interesting to me, because uh, he positioned himself as kind of anti-establishment figure, uh, as you point out, right? That he was challenging the official history because what was actually happened was being occluded by, from us uh, by this mysterious cabal of different figures. Uh, and... I did think that there was an interesting and persistent theme in your book, uh, this notion of the conspiracy theorist is somehow unraveling a truth uh, that's been deliberately concealed from us. 
uh, and it has this kind of heroic quality to it. Uh, and I'm just wondering if you could speak a little bit to that. And do you think maybe that's one of the reasons people find conspiracy theories enticing? Uh, you know, there's this notion of being a heroic vanguardist figure who's opposed uh, to this kind of technocratic, bureaucratic, official history, as it's sometimes called. Yeah, I mean, as soon as you see the phrase official history, you know you, you, you've got a conspiracy theorist yeah. there. Um, you know, uh, this idea that the entire historical profession, uh, journalists, newspapers, the media, they're all, they're all uh, working for some unnamed, mysterious group of people, whether it's government or not, they don't have minds of their own. Now, I find that's deeply insulting to historians like myself. Uh, I make up my own mind about what, what happens and what, what goes on. Uh, and it's a dismissal of uh, massive amounts of detailed research uh, carried out by professionals over many, many decades. Uh, the conspiracy theorists said, no, this is just all rubbish. So you find people who uh, simply, I think, without having read any of it, uh, dismiss the accounts of Hitler's death in 1945 uh, as official knowledge and say there's no real... There's no real uh, research or evidence for it. In fact, there's mountains of it. Mm -hmm. But because it's been done by mainstream historians, they dismiss it. And that's a kind of self-validation for them. You often find that conspiracy theorists, not always, but you often find that they are um, marginal in some way, or they feel cheated, or they feel uh, shut out from the political process, or they feel like losers. Uh, and this is a way of reassuring themselves that we know better. We know the real truth. You, the official knowledge of AOS, you don't. Uh, I think that's uh, very interesting on the part of Trump supporters, some of them, who won't accept that Trump actually lost the election uh, in November 2020, fair and square. It must have been a conspiracy to defraud the American public. Jerome Corsi is an interesting character. He's uh, pro-Trump. He wanted to lead back. Uh, he hasn't. He hasn't. He's been involved in the Trump movement, uh, and also with Infowars and with Alex Jones. Uh, he wants to lead back um, the Obama regime and particularly the Affordable Care Act uh, to the Nazis. He wants to say this is a Nazi plot, and so he says that the American state or the deep state, which is another classic conspiratorial phrase, the deep state. Um, basically took over a lot of Nazi, uh, Nazi uh, ideas and, and helped through the CIA or the OSS, its predecessor, helped Hitler to escape and took on his ideas and basically, therefore, the uh, Affordable Care Act is Nazi. It's a complete fantasy and totally absurd. But Corti, Corti has had some influence. He began his political career with um, allegations against John Kerry uh, as a presidential it's about stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah, which turned out to be totally fabricated. Yeah. So my last question for you, and then uh, Victor, I know you have a few things that you wanted to say. Was uh, actually with regard to an article you wrote in the New Statement uh, Statesman uh, this year, uh, where you argued against some quite prominent uh, public intellectuals like Jason Stanley and Timothy Snyder uh, that Trump is not in fact a fascist. Uh, although, as you point out, uh, consistently he's still very dangerous, and we'd be better off seeing the back of him, right? Uh, now, I have my own kind of uh, stake in this uh, since I wrote a book about Trump and I characterize him as a postmodern conservative 
Uh, and I'm sure plenty of our listeners are tired of hearing about that, so I won't bore you with the details. Uh, but can you just kind of articulate your argument for why Trump is not a fascist? Because uh, I've encountered many people who aren't just insistent that he is, but they seem to feel that it's important to label him as such. I mean, Victor, you, you talked about this yesterday, right? That there's a kind of visceral force uh, in associating him with this movement that we can't deny. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the idea of labeling somebody fascist, of course, discredits them far more than anything else in the view of people who call Trump a fascist. Uh, just like calling, um, I don't know, a, a, calling a camp, a camp for illegal immigrants um, Auschwitz or a concentration camp. I mean, you, you use the most extreme rhetoric to express your disapproval most strongly. But I think we need to be a bit more careful about the concepts we use and how we deploy them. So if you look back at Hitler and Mussolini, you find that what was central to their movements, the Italian fascism, and of course to German Nazism, which borrowed a lot from it, is war, militarism, uh, uniforms, invasion and conquest of other countries. And when they achieved power, uh, the total coordination and takeover of society and the regimentation of society and the militarization of society. Now, I don't see any of that in, in Trump. Um, this is a Trump's movement is a chaotic movement based on, uh, I would say, warped and exaggerated ideas of the freedom of the individual. It's exactly lack of government control that uh, that they want to impose. He's been withdrawing troops from other countries. It's isolationist in many ways. Uh, you can see the opposite of genuine fascism in a lot of what Trump has done. What he is, I think, is an American populist in the style of American populism going way back with many other examples. Anti-democratic, um, dictatorial, uh, and uh, of course, uh, opposed to neutral justice, opposed to free media, all of these things. But that doesn't make him a fascist. He's a populist. Uh, all fascists were populists but not all populists are fascists. And I think we need to identify what he is, where he comes from and what he's doing uh, before, uh, in, you know, before we can actually take, take, take action. It's no use fighting the battles of yesterday. We're not fighting Hitler or Mussolini, we're fighting Trump, if that's the side that you're, that you're on. Um, and I think you also have to situate him in this new era of mass information, mass disinformation, Mm -hmm. overload of information, uh, the bypassing of the traditional gatekeepers of opinion, uh, fact checkers, editors, um, producers of uh, newspapers, radio, TV programs, and so on. The internet bypasses all of them. And uh, that is where we are at the moment. Uh, and I think we need to recognize that and take steps. For me, the most important thing is to try and curb and stop the flow of misinformation that is coursing across the internet like sewage and <laughs> drowning us all. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah no, for sure. I, I, that resonates a lot with me. I've, for a while, I've been arguing that uh, the fascist label, you know, it gives people, it kind of lets people off the hook from actually explaining what's bad about Trump in specific terms in a way. And there's a temptation. I mean, you know, not to conflate it with uh, conspiracy theories at all, but I guess I see like there's a there's a human tendency to want simple black and white answers. And I think maybe tendency to fascism is similar to people's temptation towards some conspiracy theories, which I think at one point in your book you talk about as being black and white uh, answers. That's right. 
Yeah, so I did uh, have another question about about back to the conspiracy theory um, um, from the book. Let me just see here. Um, oh yeah, so at the end of your book, in the conclusion, at the beginning of the conclusion, you make a, a, a really interesting claim that I think touches something really important about the nature of conspiracy theories, and and you say that, um, you know, that in some ways they're a result, um, in many ways of I think you say um, a product of modern science scholarship appearing to share their most common structure and modes of argument while at the same time radically challenging them. And I thought that that was really interesting. And I wonder if you could, you could speak more about that. Well, because it varies, you know, I mean, it's, if you've got on the, uh, on, on Twitter, you, you can't really make any serious arguments at all on Twitter, but <laughs> books, articles uh, which have been published uh, by conspiracy theorists about things like uh, the assassination of JFK or 9-11 or, the ones that I deal with, um, you find that they are replete with all the kind of apparatus of modern scholarship. They're overloaded with footnotes. That they're obsessed with tiny details, which they then blow up into things that are much more uh, important than they than, than they really are. Let me take one example. Okay, in the flight of Rudolf Hess, um, uh, there are a lot of you know we know pretty well. There are, there's the records of one, of one sort or another by radar stations, by the Royal Air Force, um, and, by, and by others, uh, of the plane that he flew, where it was at any given time, uh, on its way from Germany across the North Sea to uh, Scotland, uh, Western Scotland. Uh, so it flew over a lot of land as well. Now, there's little discrepancies in some of the timings. You tell a couple of minutes here, a couple of minutes there, different sources disagree. And this is blown up uh, into by some conspiracy theorists into an argument whether well the evidence is all falsified, it's all wrong. But in fact, people didn't have electronic watches; uh, they depended on clockwork and uh, on often rather inaccurate timepieces. So it's not surprising there were discrepancies. So that kind of detail, and you find pages and pages and pages of this mm. of this stuff. So um. I guess one other question I had was like maybe you touched on it a little bit, but I was kind of just curious from my from my own uh, curi uh, curiosity. You know, do you have a favorite of the outlandish Hitler uh, survival conspiracies that you that you come across in your book? Yeah, I, I love the one where he uh, is taken by a Nazi flying saucer uh, <laughs> equipped with anti gravity uh, to go to a secret base underneath the Antarctic. Uh, and, yeah, and stay there, sending out flying saucers occasionally to see if it's safe to come back into the world. That, that's my favorite. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I guess one last thing would be, um, you've you've spoken to it. You know, the current context of the internet being like a r real cesspool. You know, uh, p pushing suit like sewage of the sewage of conspiracy theories. You know, I, I did wonder though. There's also a growing proliferation of debunking conspiracy theories, but 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 on the whole, I guess you would say things are a lot a lot worse a, a lot worse of a situation today than they've ever been. You think? Well, you know, people began the internet and uh, and the World Wide Web with incredible optimism. This is going to democratize yeah. knowledge and so on, uh, and it has done that. Um, think of now; uh, it's just so much easier to look up accurate, documented. Uh, information than it was like 30 years ago when you had to go to libraries and archives and all the rest of it. And uh, it, it's there are a lot of fact-checking websites out there. If you think of Holocaust denial, the, the denial, extreme right-wingers denial that um, six million Jews were killed and the gas chambers are used and so on, you can find websites now that present huge amounts of information to disprove those those uh, that conspiracy theory. 
you know, it's all been invented or suppressed. Um, but at the same time, there's, a, there's a, an underbelly of, of knowledge transmission, uh, which is disinformation, uh, not to mention, of course, the huge amounts of violent, pornographic and uh, hatred-filled and other kinds of content that's come over the internet. And that I don't think the people who set the internet up really, really bargained for. Uh, and that is, I think, what society has to grapple with. Uh, I think a beginning has been made. I do think that uh, barring Trump permanently from Twitter has been the most serious blow he's uh, mm. received, mm. apart from his not being elected uh, in uh, in the United States. So, but I think it's a long way to go. I think there's a lot more things that need to be done. Yeah. Yeah, and I think of websites like Snopes, which has been around for a while. If you're familiar with it, right? It debunks, I think, uh, conspiracy theories. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good resource. Um, but in any case, I was, I guess, maybe lastly, just off the top of my head, um, are you working on any project, any new projects at this point? I'm writing a book called Hitler's People uh, and researching it, uh, which is about. Uh, it's done through individual short biographies, explore, uh, trying to explore why people supported Hitler, starting with. His immediate entourage, like Goering, Goebbels, Hess, Lai, and so on, uh, and then moving on to middle-ranking Nazis and then down to ordinary supporters. So I'm about a third of the way through doing it, and I hope it will appear in 2023. Okay. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, uh, Sir Evans. We really appreciate it. Uh, again, uh, check out his new book, The Hitler Conspiracies. Um, again, uh, if you have any interest in the Second World War, you'll find it an illuminating resource. Uh, and if you're interested in contemporary politics, uh, which was what really surprised me about it, you'll probably learn something as well. Um, so I hope you have a fantastic day. And again, thank you so much for coming on to our channel. Okay, yeah. thank you very much indeed for inviting me. Thank, thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye, Professor. Here we go. Bye-bye.